Hello, greetings, thank you for your interest in spiritual matters, and for the gift of spending time with us as we continue to explore what God has made known in Jesus and through Scripture. My name is Ethan, I work with the Venice Church of Christ, we're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. If we can be of any service, we'd love to be of assistance. Please uh, let us know uh, by reaching out to us where you found us here and subscribing to us uh, by reaching out to us at VeniceChurchChrist.org or also on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The burden of Yahweh to Malachi, beginning in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, you priests, this commandment is for you. If you do not listen and take seriously the need to honor my name, says Yahweh of heaven's armies. I will send judgment on you and turn your blessings into curses. Indeed, I have already done so because you are not taking it to heart. I am about to discipline your children and will spread awful on your faces, the very awful produced at your festivals, and you will be carried away along with it. Then you will know that I sent this commandment to you that my covenant may be continue to be with Levi, says Yahweh of heaven's armies. My covenant with him was designed to bring life and peace. I gave its statutes to him to fill him with awe, and he indeed revered me and stood in awe before me. He taught what was true. Sinful words were not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and integrity, and he turned away many people from sin. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge of sacred things, and people should seek instruction from him because he is a messenger of Yahweh's of heaven's armies. You, however, have turned from the way. You have caused many to violate the law. You have corrupted the covenant with Levi, says Yahweh of heaven's armies. Therefore I have caused you to be ignored and belittled before all people to the extent that you are not following after me and are showing partiality in your instruction. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we betray one another, thus making light of the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has become disloyal, and unspeakable sins have been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the holy things that Yahweh loves and has turned to a foreign god. May Yahweh cut off from the community of Jacob every last person who does this, as well as the person who presents improper offerings to Yahweh of heaven's armies. You also do this. You cover the altar of Yahweh with tears as you weep and groan, because he no longer pays any attention to the offering, nor accepts it favorably from you. Yet you ask why? Yahweh is testifying against you on behalf of the wife you married when you were young, to whom you have become unfaithful, even though she is your companion and wife by law. No one who has even a small portion of the Spirit in him does this. What did our ancestor do when seeking a child from God? Be attentive, then, to your own spirit, for one should not be disloyal to the wife he took in his youth. I hate divorce, says Yahweh God of Israel, and the one who is guilty of violence, says Yahweh of heaven's armies. Pay attention to your conscience, and do not be unfaithful. So, as we've seen, uh, this is the burden, or the oracle, uh, of, of God given to Malachi. Malachi uh, means my messenger. Uh, we're going to see kind of a play on that there in verse 7. Um, it may be a title and description, perhaps more likely than a name. We believe he proclaims God's message to the people in Jerusalem around the year 420 B.C., that he's last among the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. And in chapter 1, we saw that God had displayed his love toward Israel because he had chosen Israel and rejected Esau, and the Edomites would suffer from God's hostility, and that Israel has dishonored and disrespected God because they have not offered their best animals that God indeed would be glorified and magnified among the nations. And so Malachi is still in this. I mean, chapter divisions come later, so the same theme is being discussed, and the priests are really uh, being uh, excoriated here as we begin chapter 2. 
which goes all the way back into what we see here in chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Um, the blessings that God was giving to the descendants of Levi are being turned into curses because they're dishonoring God because they're not providing the proper sacrifices. Uh, we see here, um, I'm about to discipline your children in verse 3. Uh, there's some textual confusion. Some of the versions understand it as taking away one's arm, which would be the Hebrew Zeroah as opposed to Hebrew Zerah. See, you can see why that's somewhat similar. Uh, but we don't see any cursed language about taking arms away in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but we understand the idea that the children uh, would be disciplined that the curse and the consequences were going to come upon the descendants of the priests, like seen in Deuteronomy 28. Uh, and many may find that a concept offensive, but we must remember that, that the children were walking in the ways of the fathers, and there's a much more nuanced understanding of that than the kind of uh, knee-jerk uh, Ezekiel 18-based idea that the that every in part of sin and every consequence of sin somehow dies uh, with the person who committed it, uh, which is certainly never taught anywhere in Scripture. The word for awful here in the NET is the Hebrew peresh, which is the entrails removed in preparing a sacrifice. So we can imagine the idea that the animal guts will be spread on your faces and you'll be carried away along with it because, of course, it's on. It's even though you've offered the animal, that awful is is still disgusting. You try to get rid of it. It, it gets, you know, pushed out, removed, and they're going to be removed as well in a very visceral, gripping image. Uh, Malachi here is very acutely aware of what happens in the midst of animal sacrifice. And he continues in verses 4 through 6 uh, with a kind of talking about the covenant loyalty that God has shown in, in the embodiment of Levi. And what's interesting about this is that unless Malachi is, is providing a kind of tradition of which we are unaware, which would be hard to sustain, uh, none of this is true about Levi the person. Levi the person in Genesis, and the stories that we read of him, um, he is the third son of Jacob. He and his brother Simeon are the ones who uh, kind of hatch the plot against the Shechemites, um, where after they've all been circumcised and they're in pain, they come through and kill all the men and enslave all the women and children. Uh, and... The blessings of Levi really come to the descendants of the Levites, maybe embodied more in Aaron than in Levi, uh, seen in Exodus, Leviticus, and in Numbers. And so it's probably best to read Malachi as, as really looking at the idealized version of Levi, talking about what God intended to do with Levi in terms of the descendants of Levi, um, that they would be teaching the truth, that they would avoid sin, that they would walk with God, they turn the people away from sin. Um, and that this is supposed to be a covenant of life and peace, and it was supposed to be a good covenant here for them, but they have instead uh, not done that. And that's causing great difficulties. And so that's why in verses 7 through 9, there's this expectation that the priest should be transmitting knowledge of the sacred, and that the priest should be looking to uh, the priest as the Malach. Uh, you hear Malachi, Malach, it's the same word, because Malachi is my messenger, Malach is just the word for messenger here and that the priests have proven unfaithful. Uh, and so they have induced many to violate the Torah. They have thus corrupted the covenant God made with uh, Levi and his descendants. And so the priests will be disgraced in the sight of the people. And all of this, because they're not doing what God wanted them to do, they're not teaching appropriately, the people are not behaving appropriately, and they're complicit in it. Then in verses 10 through 12, we kind of step back and look at all 
uh, all Israel here. Uh, it's 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 not an affirmation of the universal fatherhood of God here in verse ten uh, that we not all have one father. Uh, it's talking about our one father here is Israel, Jacob. Um, yes, you can use what Paul says in Acts 17 and then go back to Noah and Adam and say, yes, all human beings are. Uh, but in the context, that's not his purpose here. The idea here is that um, uh, there's betrayal of Israelites uh, of Israelites. And, and why is this if we all have one father? And he says here, it's because they have um, married the daughter of a foreign god, literally, in Hebrew uh, there in verse... Um, 12, 11. The challenge, of course, is that, that that's, an, that's a metaphor. Uh, it's a very fruitful metaphor. We see it in Hosea and Ezekiel uh, that idolatry is often spoken of in terms of marital and sexual imagery, particularly that of adultery. And so the idea there is, as the NCS says, that they have turned to a foreign god. They are serving other gods, uh, the whole thing that led them into exile and difficulty to begin with. And so Malachi is directly connecting the laments about betrayal among the covenant community to how members of the community have betrayed and proven disloyal to their covenant with their God. That some have turned to foreign gods, others are making inappropriate offerings, and that all these people are being cut off from Israel. And so we're seeing uh, throughout this chapter this idea, you know, God has made this covenant. He made it with Levi. It was supposed to be covenant of life. It's not turning out that way because the Levites are being faithless to the covenant. Uh, Israel here is being faithless to their covenant with God. And then in verses 13 through 16, we see the very strong hostility of God toward a lot of the Israelites because they have not proven faithful to the covenant of the wives of their youth, as he says here. Uh, so what's going on? Uh, in verses 13 through 16, there's a lot going on here, and the text is a lot of times a little challenging because of some, maybe some textual corruption issues or just things that we're not entirely clear about. But we know that the Israelites are weeping and mourning because God's not observing their offerings. He's not regarding them at all. Israel wants to know why. And so Malachi tells them, you are faithless to the wives of their youth. Ostensibly, at some point, they are divorcing their wives and marrying others. The NET by law, uh, talking about how she is your wife uh, by law, uh, in verse 14, is uh, by covenant, uh, literally in Hebrew. And it testifies that marriage is indeed a covenant. And also that it involves the sharing of vows, because that is what a covenant is. It's agreement like that. Then we have the whole thing going on in verse 15. Uh, the NET says, No one who has even a small portion of the Spirit in him does this. What did our ancestor do when seeking a child from God? Be attentive then to your own spirit, for one should not be disloyal to the wife he took in his youth. Okay. Uh, in the American Standard Version, uh, it goes in a different way. Yes, everybody else does. The literal Hebrew in this one part, uh, no one who has even, you know, and not one has done, and a remnant of the Spirit to him, and then talking about the one, uh, moving on after that. The American Standard will say as, And did he not make one, although he had the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one he sought a godly seed? The English Standard will go, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking godly offspring? The New Revised Standard goes, Did not one God make her? Both flesh and spirit are his, and what does the one God desire? Godly offspring. So what's going on here? You've got some really different ways of understanding that verse. And it all goes back to the fact that the Hebrew text often is very... In the prophets especially, you read 
the prophets literally in Hebrew, and it's a bunch of words jumbled together, that when you look at translations, you can see, yeah, you can see how you get from point A to point B. That is what really the meaning is. Uh, so it doesn't take a whole lot if you have a couple words that are maybe not exactly as well defined, or there's something that uh, is maybe contextually missing, or there's a vagary to lead to this kind of situation. I mean, the question really is, what does the one refer to? Uh, what you got with the NET is the one looking at Abraham and looking at that ancestor and asking Israel to say, hey, what happened when Abraham and Sarah, you know, Abraham, you know, God wanted, he wanted offspring, right? He was the promised offspring. What happened? Abraham took it in his hand, uh, took Hagar and had the whole Ishmael thing, which was not according to the the purpose of God. And the NET thus is taking the spirit statement away from that. And the ASV, you can see where that's kind of going there as well, a little bit. Um, the English Standard, New Revised Standard, are really looking at Malachi making kind of a gnomic statement, or just kind of a wisdom statement. What does God want out of marriage? God wants godly offspring out of marriage. Uh, and and the one here is God. And uh, that, that's what he, and they're incorporating the spirit into that idea. Um, each one is, has its challenges. Uh, the idea that Israel have any portion of the Spirit is problematic in light of the whole witness of the Old Testament and uh, the idea of Joel 2, 28-32, looking forward to that promise in the future. Um, but it does better to comport to the literal Hebrew because it would be hard to argue that Malachi would consider Abraham having only a residue of the Spirit when Genesis author reckoned him as a prophet in Genesis 20 and verse 7 uh, from ASV. Um, and you know, looking at the one as God also has its challenges as well, because it, it makes it seem like the only purpose of marriage is godly offspring, which of course is very much a, a, a big part of a lot of uh, Catholic Protestant theology. Um, but, and if that were the case, well, you're, you're getting offspring um, with this other stuff going on here, even when you've been, you've divorced the wife later. So again, it's a really challenging passage. Uh, and then verse 16 also has a challenge, um, because you can read it, uh, that he who hates his wife and divorces her is guilty of violence. And it requires amending the text to get to that point. And emendation is kind of making a couple changes. Uh, but the reading that we have in the NET suggests that the first person pronoun has dropped from the text. And that we have, I hate divorce and the one who is guilty of violence. And it's more likely. Um, to look at it that way, as opposed to looking at divorce leading to violence. Uh, so what's a lot of challenges here, right? Really, you know, and it's unfortunate because it's really fun, fundamentally and powerful text. But we can get from Torah and the, and the expositors of it in the Second Temple Jewish world, uh, along with some archaeological evidence. We've actually found a certificate of divorce from a much later part of the Second Temple period, but still part of that same overall milieu. Uh, the divorce was allowed for a lot of reasons. And one of the arguments was, do you have to divorce in certain circumstances or not? Uh, and also, which circumstances can you divorce in? And the expectation was that the woman would be given a certificate of divorce and would be able to mar marry other people, as would the man. But, as in all such things, the woman would be at a significant disadvantage, and that's especially true if she had were older and already had borne some children. And this is all kind of coming out of Deuteronomy 24 and, and related passages. So we can imagine a situation where a guy has been married for a while, has children with a woman, you know, gets tired of her for whatever reason, and goes and, and divorces her. Okay, sure, you know, in theory, they can both are free to marry somebody else, but he is going to be in a much more socially advantageous position to go and marry somebody else, and the wife is going to be in a much less advantageous position. 
uh, to be able to find somebody and uh, the challenge of, of the family there as well. We want to be very clear that Malachi doesn't say you have violated the law, that you have broken your covenant with God. He's not saying that they have acted in a sinful way in divorcing their wives. But he's kind of foreshadowing what Jesus is going to talk about in Matthew 19, 4-8 and in relevant passages, that divorce really wasn't part of God's purpose, that it was a concession to the hardness of heart of Israel, that God really is looking for covenant loyalty to one's spouse. And thus, you know, God hates divorce and the one who is guilty of violence, and that God wants them to prove faithful to their commitments. And that's what he's looking for, that faithfulness to that commitment. And so Malachi here is really uh, upbraiding the Jewish people for how they have turned from the way and how disloyal they have been in their covenant. And that's the consistent theme uh, throughout this part of Malachi, is this covenant disloyalty. The priests have been disloyal to God's covenant with Levi through Aaron uh, because they're not teaching and practicing according to the Torah. Uh, Some people in Israel have committed idolatry and thus they're disloyal to God. Men have divorced their wives and have proven disloyal to the covenant that they've made to them. And Malachi is connecting the fact that people have all these issues right now and the dismay they're going through with this covenant disloyalty. And these consequences are not evidence of God's faithlessness. That's another thing, is the curses that they've been suffering are, ironically, demonstrations themselves of God's faithfulness because God has established these consequences for covenant disobedience. That if you do not do what I say, these are things you're going to get. Um, and it's really important to see that. And, and these are warnings that we see, not just to people at then. Uh, in, in James 3 and verse 1, you know, not many should be teachers because there's going to be this hard, this more strict judgment. And in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, Peter uh, low-key is warning, warning uh, Christians, that Christian husbands in particular, that if they do not dwell with their wives in an understanding way, uh, there's a very significant concern that their prayers might be hindered. He might be getting this from Malachi here, in fact. Uh, in having that suggestion itself. And a lot of times we talk about the future consequences of of our covenant disloyalty, and those are very real. But there's also sometimes very present uh, consequences of covenant disloyalty. And if we see a, a people who are disloyal to covenant, if they're not faithful to their agreements, uh, if they're not faithful to their God, not faithful to themselves, not faithful to the people they make agreements with, uh, there's going to be betrayal and pain and suffering, and the land will suffer a curse. And we understand uh, that even if we don't suffer those temporal consequences, because a lot of times what ends up happening is that people feel like, you know, oh, well, nothing bad happened uh, when I was disloyal to covenant, so I'll just keep doing it. Uh, that, that could lead to our eternal alienation with God and condemnation on the final day in Hebrews 10, 26-31, a fate we certainly do not want. And so... Malachi is really telling us how covenants are very important to God. The covenants that we make with God and the covenants that people make with one another, especially looking at marriage there. And we also should not trifle with covenant. We should not uh, take covenant lightly. And we should honor our commitments and pay what we owe and to do what we uh, say we're going to do and to be faithful to people. And that when you don't have that kind of faithfulness, you don't have that kind of trust, you're going to have breakdown. And one can certainly see that in our current world. Malachi 2, in the first nine verses, continue this condemnation of the priests and really get after them for not teaching the Torah appropriately, not honoring it through the appropriate sacrifice. Because they were the ones who were supposed to be seen as God's messengers. They were to teach and practice faithfully. But they failed, and we can very rightly see that because the priests aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, Malachi was called to do so. And that contrast there, that you know, if the priests had been doing what they were supposed to do, Malachi would not have needed to be called. 
can really speak to us today. Because uh, who are the priests today? Uh, a lot of religious organizations will appoint certain people as priests, but in the New Covenant, in 1 Peter 2, 8, 9, and Revelation 1 and verse 6, we're all considered priests and a priesthood to God. And we are expected to faithfully teach what's been handed down to us. It's the whole premise of 2 Timothy 2, uh, verses 2 and 15, that we are to um, teach in the presence of uh, to, to, to human beings what we have learned in the presence of uh, of, of the others. And, you know, it's a, a generational cycle there uh, that we're supposed to hand down the teachings about what God has done in Christ generation after generation, and that we need to be diligent to present ourselves as workmen who have no need to be ashamed because we've rightly handled that message. And so it's, it's what would Malachi have to say to us? Uh, do people learn of Jesus as the Christ based on what we teach and do? That are we faithfully embodying him? Or are we failing in that duty? Because the priests here have a Malachi who will uh, take up that burden. But we have no expectation or reason to believe that God's going to raise up a Malachi right now to do that. that. That's why we need to prove faithful to God and his purposes and how we teach and how we live. And again, really important to see that the Malachi connects the fact that the people feel like there's betrayal among the people of God, and he connects that, well, you have not proven faithful to God in what you have done, in verses 10 through 12. And this is also something we see in the New Testament, that uh, he who is faithful in little is also faithful in much. And I think that the contrapositive is also true. If you're not faithful in a little, you can't be entrusted with much. That if there's no trust in things that you can see, uh, it's going to be hard to have trust in anything. And so you see this in both directions in the New Testament. That if we're not faithful in terms of our fellow human beings, if we're not loving our brother, then how can we say we love God or that we're being covenant faithful, faithful to covenant with God when we aren't even faithful to one another, as you get in 1 John 4, 7-21. through 21. And if people aren't honoring their covenant with God they've made in Christ, why would we expect them to prove faithful in dealings among people? That if they're not going to honor the, uh, the one they believe is, is watching over them, uh, then, then we shouldn't necessarily expect them to honor uh, what they say to us as well. And it goes back to how seriously are we taking our covenant obligations and responsibilities? And what are we supposed to say about what, what, what Malachi has to say about divorce? It's a really powerful exhortation, really, about the covenant loyalty in marriage. And we get ourselves in a lot of difficulty when we talk about and, and put the focus on divorce, when Malachi, and Jesus also in Matthew 19, is really putting the emphasis on covenant loyalty to your spouse. Uh, what does Jesus say in Matthew 19? That divorcing, marrying another is adultery, unless the, the divorce is for uh, pornea, sexual even behavior. And it's a challenge today because a lot of people find that very strict and demanding. And there's all kinds of ways that the standard that God has established there has been used as a cudgel to cause people even more harm than necessary. But at the same time, is Malachi wrong? You know, does, why would God not hate divorce? Because isn't divorce an ugly and terrible thing for everyone involved? And that's the thing that... that we need to be sensitive to the pain a lot of people are in and, and, and the relational pain that they've endured. And especially people who are in abusive situations uh, absolutely should do all that they can to get out of that abusive situation uh, in order to uh, deal with whatever they need to deal with in that with all of that. Uh, but in focusing on the abusive situation, we've seen in our current society how many people just elevate themselves to what they think or they want or need. Uh, above loyalty to the one uh, that they've made a commitment to. 
Um, how many people have been impoverished because of divorce? Is, is a divorce ever ideal? Ever? Absolutely not. Uh, it may be an, an unfortunate circumstance that comes about because of the sexual behavior of somebody. Uh, somebody might feel compelled to separate because of the abuse they're suffering. But that's not the ideal. That's not what should happen. There's a lot of pain and hurt there that we should still prize and honor uh, covenant loyalty and to want to in- encourage covenant loyalty. Again, not to people's harm, but to maintain that principle in general because it's something that's sorely lacking today in so many places. And it might be reading too much into Malachi to see especially the fact that he uses the idea of wife of your youth. You see that in Proverbs too, but you can especially see that as uh, people who have been married a little bit of time. That is Malachi really concerned about people who are divorcing their wives while they're young? Uh, it's not that the principle wouldn't apply, but it's all the more so uh, for those men if they are divorcing their wives they've had for 10, 15, 20, 25 years and then seeking some other wife, ostensibly probably younger or you know more well-connected. Uh, and thus leaving impoverished and in great distress the woman that had been faithful to him for all those years. Uh, and we still see uh, those circumstances playing out. Uh, the only perhaps difference that we have today, beyond the fact of no-fault divorce, is that a lot of times it's not just the man divorcing the woman in those contexts. So sometimes it's the woman divorcing the man. Uh, and again, it it's one of those situations where it's about self-actualization, quote-unquote, more than it's about any kind of abuse or any kind of real harm that way being done. And God is not glorified or honored in that. And divorce uh, causes pain. Where there is divorce, there is pain. It's not something we should wish on anyone that we still, in this society, uh, need to affirm the value and the power of covenant loyalty. Uh, even in the face of a lot of difficulties with marriage, that, that covenant loyalty still should be prized because God's covenant loyalty has always been contrasted with man's covenant faithlessness. And that's why it's so important for us to uphold covenant loyalty toward God and Christ, and that we're faithful in our covenants in life, that we can obtain the resurrection of life. Uh, let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful, Father, that you have loved us and cared for us and, and provided for us, and that you've proven faithful to your covenants to us. Uh, we are so thankful that you have demonstrated your faithfulness in Jesus, in the Spirit, word and through one another and all the gifts that you've given us and um, we are never want to take any of that for granted we're mindful father the many who are in great uh, pain and distress uh, we pray that you would heal those who are ill with COVID-19 and other illnesses we pray that you would provide comfort for those in great grief and distress we pray that you provide for those who are in need that you would uh, uphold the weak and support those who are marginalized we pray that you, justice and righteousness will be done in the land and that many would come to acknowledge your truth and be saved. Uh, we pray, Father, that we would prove faithful in our agreement, our covenants. We pray that we will be faithful to you and that we would dwell with you uh, in relational unity and grow into Jesus Christ and his grace and knowledge and that you would strengthen and sustain us to that end that we can more effectively embody him toward one another uh, and to grow in our understanding and our faithfulness toward you. We pray that we be faithful to one another uh, as God's fellow covenant people and to prove faithful to what we say uh, and to embody uh, Jesus toward those in uh, among the faith and in the world. 
uh, we pray, Father, that you would strengthen those in marriage and uh, that spouses would be loyal to one another and would seek to uh, strengthen and, and build up one another in their relationships and that uh, we can find ways of, of minimizing the, the pain and distress that comes from divorce and that people would uh, choose covenant loyalty over uh, self-actualization or whatever other rationalizations they give for uh, abandoning the spouse of their youth. Uh, in all things, we pray that we would faithfully embody your purposes in Jesus, uh, that we can obtain the resurrection of life in him. And we look forward to his return to that end. And it's in, in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, we're so glad that you've joined us today. We'd love to hear your thoughts about what we've talked about here with Malachi chapter 2, or if you have some other issue or prayer request, please let us know what you think in the comments. Subscribe to us. Uh, you can reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org or also on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.